2: twitter at dan Proft and at dan prof show we have to address the coronavirus now as president trump did yesterday trying to provide some context to the threat level because
3: of all we've done the risk to the american people remains very low we have the greatest experts in the world really in the world right here the people that are called upon by other countries when things like this happen we uh We're ready to adapt and we're ready to do whatever we have to as the disease spreads, if it spreads.
2: Prior to uh, introducing Vice President Mike Pence as his point man for the coordinated response, President Trump recounted what has been done by the administration and what is being
3: done. We've stopped non-U.S. citizens from coming into America from China. That was done very early on. We're screening people, and we have been at a very high level, screening people coming into the country from Infected areas. We have in quarantine those infected and those at risk. We have a lot of great quarantine facilities. We're rapidly developing a vaccine, and they can speak to you. The professionals can speak to you about that. Uh, The vaccine is coming along well. And in speaking to the doctors, we think this is something that we can develop fairly rapidly a vaccine for the future and coordinate with the support of our partners. We have great relationships with all of the countries that we're talking about. Some uh, fairly large number of countries. Some, it's one person. And uh, many countries have no problem whatsoever. And we'll see what happens. But we're very, very ready for this, for anything, whether it's going to be a uh, breakout of larger proportions or whether or not we're uh, You know, we're at that very low level. Uh,
2: Dr. Anthony Fauci also addressed, per Trump mentioning vaccine, he uh, from the National Institute for Health addressed the time horizon for a vaccine. And this is important because there's been some sort of partial reporting on this. And it's not six weeks. What you're really talking about for any sort of vaccine is a year to a year and a half. He And he went through that process in some detail, which was very helpful to inform the public. He also, though, met, made mention and distinguished between a vaccine and antiviral therapies like the antiviral therapies we have for the flu, which we're more familiar with in this country. And that there's more promise for potentially antiviral therapies that could effectively treat coronavirus in a couple of months versus a vaccine that may be a year, a year and a half away. For more on this topic from the medical perspective, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Roger Klein, who uh, is a former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, HHS, all the alphabet soup bureaucracies. Dr. Klein, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, hi, Dan. What, what was your ass- Assessment of uh, everything you heard from uh, the politicians yesterday, yes, but even more importantly, the healthcare professionals that know what they're talking about.
4: I was actually reassured to hear the president's sober and what I view as realistic and appropriate comments. You look at this; we've already got a lot of numbers here. Some of them are coming out of China, and there's limited reliability. But we've had a chance to observe patients. We know that there's a little over eighty thousand cases have been documented in the world there's probably significantly more for example in china than have been reported and what's happening is the sicker people are tending to get tested and so the virus is looking more dangerous than it probably is i mean if you look at for example the death rate in china which you've got to believe would be higher than than here in in my view because of the, the care system that we have if there are five times more cases in wuhan china you have a death rate that's point, like point six. You're getting into low ranges resembling the flu. I think people fear the spread, and I think that's rightfully so. But look, at we have 40 million people a year infected by the flu here, 40 million, 60,000 deaths. We're not approaching that. We've only had 14 people, in, depending on who you're looking at, that have tested positive base after coming here. You know, with a total, after bringing in people, a total of maybe 60, 270 people a year get struck by lightning. And right now, I think we're in pretty good shape.
2: Uh, I wanted to just get your reaction to some of the responses from infectious disease experts, medical professionals. Dr. Marguerite Neal at Brown University, my mantra, keep calm and carry on. Dr. Stanley Perlman at University of Iowa, coronavirus expert as well. If you see someone on a bus who is coughing, move away. Neil also saying, don't wait until the last minutes to refill your prescriptions. You want to comfortably have a, at least a 30-day supply. It seems like, frankly, very pedestrian advice we're getting from the medical professionals. Is this to tamp down hysteria, or is it also just a recognition? You know, yeah, wash your hands, don't cough on people, cover your mouth when you sneeze, you know, do all the things that you would do otherwise in polite society, and just uh, keep your head about you.
4: Of course you should do these things, because you don't want to get the flu. And if you're in contact with elderly people, or you have have some underlying illnesses you absolutely must get a flu shot and everybody should get a flu shot the flu is a tremendous threat and that's what i think where people are are not placing i don't think people are placing this in context because they're not looking at what the flu does every year
2: uh with uh, respect to uh the testing scott Gottlieb, former fda director under trump made this point that you're i think referencing he talked about bottlenecks at cdc and fda with respect to uh the diagnostic tests for coronavirus and that there should be green lighting of laboratory developed tests at the local hospital level. It shouldn't all be run through the, the centralized bureaucracy of the CDC because the turnaround times are going to become too long if we get a serious increase in the number of of, of cases. Uh, Is that is that something you agree with?
4: Yes. I mean, most tests in many areas are laboratory developed, but it's not only laboratory developed tests. I mean, yes, I think we need to have a mechanism whereby laboratories can bring highly skilled, qualified laboratories and with very, very smart people running them in academic medical centers and other large hospitals are bringing these tests up. But there's also a company that's already got a test CE marked and selling and you're available in Europe. A U.S. company. So you've got a company. I saw a press release two days ago from a company in Utah. They're CE marked in Europe. They can sell that test in Europe, but they can't sell it here.
5: Mm, okay. And I, I know I talked
4: to people. I have talked to people who are directing labs who would set up testing now at large labs in major cities, but but who, where they would set it up, but they don't have the ability to do it.
2: And they don't have the ability because this this is an FDA block, or, or why can't why can't? They? Yeah. Yeah, they're
4: not allowed. So, so I mean, I, right. you know, people don't want to start getting warning letters and have FDA coming in. And and what they're doing is they're saying, you know, the CDC is not allowed to distribute. Uh, its tests, which would be another way to do laboratory-developed tests, is to distribute them to, for example, you know, a, a major hospitals in major, you know, in, in major cities. You could do, do more surveillance that way and test more people. There, again, there's also a kit. I mean, I don't look at the kit. I haven't seen the reliability of the kit. What I've seen is, is that it, it was announced in media, and you can, you can look it up yourself, that, that they, there is a test kit available. I think the company's is named CoDiagnostics. And I'm, I'm not, I don't know anything about them. I'm not related to them. I, don't, I can't verify the test. What I can say is is a fee marked in Europe. They had a press release, and they're allowed to sell it in Europe. It's in Utah. Uh, I
2: Utah. want to get your reaction to the to the argument about funding to $2.5 billion, $4 billion, $8, billion. $8 billion. Uh, the, the argument among the politicians uh, in D.C. about that. Uh, uh, what is the importance you place on the difference in the proposed funding levels for – of Enhanced coronavirus preparedness.
4: Yeah, so, so, I, so I, in my view, this is a this is a political discussion, not a real one. And I think what's important is is that we mobilize uh, the people and the resources that we have. Uh, we 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 spend a lot of money on this already. We have a lot of very highly trained, qualified people in many many contexts. We've got we've got top world class medical centers in most major cities, if not all we, we you know, we, we have a lot of people uh, engaged in this in the in this effort. And I, you know, I, I think, you know, I have to rely on Secretary Azar and, and President Trump. Uh, you know, he's presumably getting the, the information about what's needed from the professionals uh, who are, who are directly working with this. And, and, you know, Alex says our secretary is a very, an extremely capable person and they, they've got a lot of very good people. I, you you know, everybody would like to have a bigger budget. Uh, but, but we also spend, we spend billions of dollars already in this area and we have state health departments across the country, you know, some better funded, some, some less well funded, but I, I think, I think we're doing the right thing. I think thus far the administration has done exactly what it should do. They were criticized early on for, for travel restrictions and that sort of thing. And I think, but I think they, the, the, these, uh, it's worked you know? And, I, you know, I, again, I think it's a political discussion, and we need to make this not a political discussion. We need to try to, to analyze this and look at it not with criticism, not trying to pick points and, and to trying to, to play election, uh, November's election off of this coronavirus, but to address it in a way that's most beneficial for the United States public.
2: He is Dr. Roger Klein. He's an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Projects, uh, FDA, and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, and former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your expertise.
4: Thank you very much for having me. Grab
2: a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class
0: is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proff Show. Well, following up on our conversation with Dr. Klein about the coronavirus threat in America, we're now pleased to be joined by Seth Fransman, who's the op-ed editor for The Jerusalem Post and also the author of the forthcoming book, After ISIS, to talk a little bit about uh, the coronavirus threat in the Middle East and and how Iran has uh, handled or, similar to China, perhaps mishandled the spread of the coronavirus in their country and what that portends for the Middle East, both in terms of a public health matter as well as economically. Seth, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh,
2: Your uh, piece that uh, I read in National Review, uh, Iran's incompetent response to coronavirus threatens the Middle East and the world, Uh, that doesn't sound like um, a very good review of Iran's uh, uh, coordinated response to the extent there has been one. Give us a sense of what Iran has done as the virus has moved outside of China and why it threatens the Middle East and perhaps even the globe.
6: Well, the thing is that Iran was not a country that necessarily people thought the coronavirus would pop up in because it was spreading from China. And the assumption was, well, if it spreads from China, we'll go to Singapore or some other parts of Asia or maybe into the globalized economy uh, from there. But actually, it turns out that Iran kept operating flights to China and wasn't, didn't apparently have any safeguards. So somehow several people with the virus returned to Iran and they went to a city in Iran called Qum, which is a very religious or a city that has a lot of pilgrims in it. And it then spread among all these people that are mostly members of the Shiite religious establishment there. And because you have lots of people praying and eating together, it seems to have spread in that city about two weeks ago, and already some Iranian politicians were warning about it last week, basically. But because Iran was having elections, the regime didn't want to mention it because they thought it would lower the already very low turnout. Even though you had people warning about it, say, on February 19th and 20th, the regime basically pretended it didn't happen and banned most of the media from even writing about it until people started dying. And now Iran has the most deaths second only to China. Now, that's not a lot of deaths. It's only a a few dozen. We, I think the feeling is that it's basically unchecked. And that means that not only is it spreading in Iran, it's also spreading among people that are returning from Iran to Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Lebanon. So it looks like Iran is kind of spreading this virus all over the Middle East, and it's it's causing a big crisis in all of these neighboring countries.
2: I mean, compare and contrast, say, the medical healthcare infrastructure in Israel. To some of the uh, surrounding countries in the Middle East, including those that uh, you suggest could have had uh, coronavirus exported through uh, Iranian airlines?
6: Well, Israel has um, obviously a healthcare system that is on par with most you know, European or Western healthcare systems. And Israel's being very, very precautious. It, it has taken back several citizens who had the virus on this cruise ship off of Japan but it has advised all of its citizens basically not to travel abroad or to not do any unnecessary traveling israel has sought to prevent people coming to the country from south korea thailand china countries that are affected so you know, it's just a diametric opposite approach of what's happening in Iran, where Iran says we're not going to even bother quarantining cities or or whole areas. We just don't think this is anything worse than the flu. And the Iranian regime has basically said that it's kind of an anti, it's an anti Iranian conspiracy, basically to to say that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, it looks like now the regime is going to cancel Friday prayers, perhaps in some cities. So, they're already canceling schools. So they kind of sense that there's a problem, but. They're just not being transparent about it.
2: How um, has there been any, I should say, a regional response through, like, the Arab League to this?
6: There's supposed to be a meeting now in Cairo, in which there will be, I think, discussions about a, a more kind of Saudi, Egyptian, UAE, Bahrain type of approach that will not include, therefore, Iran or Lebanon or some of Iran's allies. And I think that's the question is okay. So some of these countries, like in the Gulf, you know, they're very wealthy and sophisticated, and that Saudi Arabia is trying to. I think, cut down on the hajj or the pilgrimages. So they're going to try to stop that. But I think the big concern then is what happens in places like Iraq or Afghanistan or Pakistan, where you just you do not have healthcare infrastructure that is probably capable of dealing with this.
2: Uh, I wanted to to switch gears and get your reaction to uh, something else. I mean, this is just incredible to me. And I think most people who have read these stories, I don't think they've gotten the attention they deserve. But. What the hell is going on in Western Europe with the celebrations of, uh, that are feature that feature celebrations, carnivals, praise that feature anti-Semitism? First, there was a BBC story about this Belgian city of Alast where they had right. uh, uh, people dressing up as cartoonish caricatures of Orthodox Jews wearing fur, fur hats, long fake noses and costumes, uh, Nazi uniforms. And then another story that I saw a carnival float in the Spanish town of uh, Campo de Criptana in Spain. Same thing. Participants dressed like Nazis and Jewish concentration camp prisoners while dancing next to a float evoking crematoria. Are you stunned by this, or or are we just not sensitive enough in the West to what's going on with the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe?
6: No, I I think it's shocking and disgusting. I think the problem is that some of these carnivals were probably doing this for a long time, and no one really even bothered to, to take a picture of it because it was just considered so normal that well, of course you kind of mock the Jews and the Holocaust. I think that what's go- what we're what we're seeing now is that these places. It's not just they don't take the Holocaust seriously or that they're anti-Semitic. You know, they don't pick, poke fun at their own culture. By the way, the same way they poke fun at at Jews, they. They may think Nazis are funny, but if you ask them in Spain, like, okay, well what about Franco or what about the dictatorship or something, they don't seem to somehow mock their own culture. And I think <laughs> they they purposely therefore pick on the weak and the vulnerable, which of course historically, you know, there has been anti Semitism and an Inquisition in places like Spain. So I think these countries, you know, they're just they say it's quote unquote funny. But it's very clear that they choose to pick on the easy target. They obviously don't mock, for instance, um, Muslims or, or African immigrants or something because they understand quite clearly that if you do that, then there will then there will be a serious pushback. So it's, uh, it's unfortunate. It, I wish that these, these town councils would ban these types of things or you know, they would be more sensitive. I think they may have even gotten worse almost on purpose because they want to be as offensive as possible and show off to
2: the media. I mean, you know, I mean, to be fair, you had the Belgium prime minister, for example, condemn the the participants in that carnival in Alice that uh, that did these things and so forth. But it's just I just I can't wrap my mind around the fact that this has happened more than once in more than one place in Western Europe recently. And 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 the response from those actually perpetrating it is just like, oh, it's just our sense of humor. It's just us expressing uh, ourselves and so on and so forth. I mean, the. um, the sort of the banality of evil, frankly, to evoke uh, something Holocaust era, uh, is sort of shocking. Uh, not not on this, the level, of course, of the Holocaust, but just in terms of the what's happening between people's ears that thinks this is that, that who think this is funny.
6: Yeah, I think that's right, and I it's un, I I definitely think like it's it's clear that when they say, well, it's just a caricature, and you're and you say, well, no, I'm sorry, but you're dressing up. You know, Jewish people as insects and spiders and, and uh, things like that, it's clear the message is traditional anti-Semitism, not just, well, we wanted to make fun of you know Israel's prime minister or something. I mean, because it, it's clear that, that the way in which they make fun and use this racism, it's not like they're doing it to everyone and they aren't, aren't right. necessarily making fun of themselves. I mean, you'd think that these countries like Belgium, they were occupied by the Nazis. You yes. think that they, they wouldn't think it's so funny. I guess they just, for whatever reason, they don't they don't view those Nazi crimes somehow as having happened to them, which is an unfortunate forgetfulness about history.
2: Indeed, he is Seth Fransman. He is the op-ed editor of the Jerusalem Post and the author of the forthcoming book After ISIS. Seth, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Bye, here
5: You're
2: listening to
0: the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. In advance of uh, kickoff of CPAC, Inter Political Action Conference, which is in full swing today, Nikki Haley, former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., gave a talk at the Hudson Institute in defense of capitalism, saying the following.
7: This is a country where someone who wants to make the world a better place can. And for these reasons, this country has lifted up more people, unlocked more progress, and unleashed more prosperity than any other country in history. This is America, and the American system is capitalism. Many people avoid saying that word, including some conservatives and business leaders. Some think it's a politically incorrect word. But we shouldn't be ashamed of capitalism. It's another word for freedom. And it springs from America's most cherished ideals.
2: And uh, some of those Republicans are afraid to talk about capitalism. It's worse than that. They're uh, in the business of redefining it, as we've talked about in this show, Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley, most notably. We'll get to that. But Haley continued uh, going down a Hayekian path, which was nice to hear.
7: But the founders knew that economic freedom was also essential. What good are our rights if our homes and savings can be taken? Are we really free if we own nothing and the government owns everything? Of course not. So while the founders never used the word, they gave us capitalism in all but the name.
2: In other words, as Hayek said, to be controlled in our economic pursuits is to be controlled in everything. Uh, But then Haley tracked back a bit, and this is sort of the Republican position, and it's a Republican position – That leaves it open to the charge of the hypocrisy that Bernie Sanders uses to buffalo people into believing that uh, a little hypocrisy can be solved by complete command control.
7: We don't allow sweatshop working conditions in America. We've invested in a vast public education system to help our children learn the skills they need. We've created a social safety net to make sure our friends, family, and neighbors Don't fall through the cracks when they fall on hard times. As Americans, we don't want a country where people get left behind. And we don't want a country where government tells people you can't aspire to a better way of life. We'll just try to make you comfortable with the life you have.
2: For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by John Hinderaker, president of the Center of the American Experiment and uh, regular featured author on powerlineblog.com, which is a must daily read. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Glad to be with you. So I know it's easy for us to mau-mau Bolshevik Bernie's, well, Bolshevism, uh, but it, maybe it now is the time. Maybe now is the time to have this conversation that Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley and now Nikki Haley have been spoiling for, it would appear, rather than waiting until we see if Bernie's the nominee or whatever other slow-walking socialist is the nominee, and we have this argument about sort of quasi-capitalism under a Trump versus uh, a central planning under, you know, any of the Democrat socialist candidates for president. Because the problem I have with what Nikki Haley said, which is much less so than Rubio or Hawley, but still, on one hand, you want to say you shouldn't be controlled in your economic pursuits. On the other hand, you talk about government as a force of benevolence and that, uh, you know, government shouldn't be restraining you, but it should be imposing duties on other people to provide stuff for you. And those two things are hard to reconcile.
8: Well, yeah, the canoe went over that waterfall a long time ago. didn't I it, Dan. I mean, you know, uh, you can go back to the 1920s and 30s and, and find conservatives who who really took a strong stand against the idea that government is the great improver of our society. But, um, you know, I, I, am not sure. Uh, I don't like it, dad, but, but I'm not sure that going back to square one on that debate is at this at this moment an option. Maybe someday it will be.
2: Well, maybe.
8: But the the large majority of Americans have high expectations of the government.
2: I I know. And despite the fact that those expectations are rarely ever met, it's just sort of curious. And it it sort of speaks to the arguments that aren't made. And I I understand that uh, things happen incrementally. And so my point is to say when you have the other party going so far over the edge with central planning, maybe this is the opportunity not to just extol the virtues of capitalism in the abstract, but to start to inch our way back from uh, being pulled by the socialist creep of the left for so many generations. That's that's my only thought. What, you know, it's the opportunity now to talk about exactly what is happening in those Nordic countries that Bernie and uh, his Bolshevik friends like to. To hold up as the model versus what they suggest is happening because what they're proposing here, for example, as you know, is nothing like what they're actually doing in Sweden. And that's where I want to pick up our conversation when we return with John Hindraker, president of the Center for the American Experiment, powerlineblog.com, where you get John's writings. We'll be right back with more John Hindraker.
0: Makers, fixers and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof. Show.
2: We're back with John Hindraker, president of the Center for the American Center of the American Experiment, and again a contributor at Powerlineblog.com. We were just talking about uh, these models that Bolshevik Bernie likes to hold up. This is what we want to do in America, you know, like have it be like Sweden or Denmark or Norway. There was a good write-up by uh, Johan Norberg over at the Cato Institute. I will tell you what, if uh, Bernie wants to make it look like Sweden, that means for the U.S. more free trade a more deregulated product market, no Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, the abolition of occupational licensing and minimum wage laws, the abolition of taxes on property, gifts, and inheritance, and school, and, and Dan, ch- and school and choice. And,
8: a less progressive personal tax system. Yeah, we have ta- yeah. a tax system here that is more progressive and Sweden. Dan, I want to comment though, on what you were saying right before the break because I agree with you. Okay. The nice thing about a Bernie Sanders candidacy, if he gets the nomination, right now he's the odds on favorite. The nice thing is that he is an overt socialist who will actually talk about socialism and hopefully that will give us the opportunity to have that debate at a more yeah. fundamental level. The other Democrats are frankly smarter than Bernie. They're all trying to get to the same destination. The others are doing it a little bit more slowly and, and, and a lot more covertly. That's the problem they have with Sanders. It's not that they have a problem with socialism. That's what they're trying to get to. They're just afraid that because Sanders is blunt about it, he's likely to lose. And so I, I agree with you that having a candidate in this country who says, yeah, I'm a socialist and what I, my vision for America is for it to be a socialist country is a clarifying moment. So, yeah, let's have that debate and let's aggressively defend free enterprise. And your other point, of course, Dan, is obviously correct, too. Through his whole life, Bernie Sanders has been a fan of and an advocate for communism. This is a guy who took his honeymoon in the Soviet Union in 1988, at the moment when the Soviet Union was about to collapse, and came back and talked about how great it was. You know, he was an advocate for Castro and and for Venezuela. Ortega, Uh, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. You bet. Every communist that came down the pike, Bernie Sanders loved him. And now, of course, he's backing off that and he's saying, well, by socialism, I mean I mean the Scandinavian countries, you know, Denmark and so on. And that's an interesting debate, too, as you point out, because if you ask them and their leaders have, have repeatedly said this, don't call us socialists. We're not socialists. You know, we are a free enterprise country with a welfare state. And in some ways, uh, as you point out, they are. Truer to a free enterprise ideal than we are.
2: Well, it's funny, too, because much like Bernie is stuck in the uh, communist revolutionaries uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s in Central America, he's stuck in the 70s and 80s in Sweden when they did go down a socialist path from which they have subsequently retrenched and become more free market oriented because it was catastrophic economically. I, I hope President Trump, if Bernie is the nominee, or frankly any of them, is ready to make that argument. You hear so much about these people talking about Sweden. Sweden and the Nordic countries. Well, let's talk about them, actually. and Let's do a little bit of compare and contrast a, a among a lot of these quality of life issues.
6: Well, I think
8: that's right. And the other thing, of course, as you just implied there, you know, the idea that Sweden or Denmark or Norway or whatever. And by the way, Norway is prosperous largely because of North Sea oil. Oil, right. know, that, yeah. That's what's driven their economy for decades. But the idea that any of those countries represent some kind of a paradise compared to the United States is totally wrong. The standard of living here, you know, we're a much, you know, in far, far bigger, far more diverse yes. country than those Scandinavian countries. In some respects, much more difficult to govern. Nevertheless, the standard of living here is much higher than it is in Scandinavia, much well, higher.
2: And you point out, according to those same people proposing that we model ourselves after Norway, Norway shouldn't even exist because they shouldn't be allowed to use oil as a commercial product.
9: Yeah.
8: I'd like someone to uh, run for office on that platform in Norway. <laughs> yeah, let's do it all. Let's do, let's do it all with uh, solar panels up on the Arctic circle and, uh, and windmills. You
2: know, uh, David Harsani had a good piece, a uh, national review about how Bernie can happen in America. And one of the points he makes, again, the arguments we haven't made uh, and also the art that we haven't made. Uh, he points out, for example, that, Everybody knows about the Holocaust because there's been so many movies and pictures and documentaries and specials, and rightly so. But where have been the artistic expressions of what Mao did in China, of the ravages of Stalinism? of the ukrainian famine in other words we haven't done a very good job through culture as well as through k through 12 educating subsequent generations of americans about the horrors and ravages of communist rule
8: well the people who are in charge of both our culture and our schools don't want those stories told yeah you're right i mean they would be they're riveting stories you know and and there are huge moral lessons but hollywood doesn't want to tell those stories the teachers unions don't want to tell those stories they want another go at socialism you know if we could only do socialism right you know it would be great that's their position
2: are you comfortable with uh the the uh, election being a referendum on capitalism or being a binary between capitalism as so explained and socialism as bernie explains it
8: well i absolutely am dad and let me add this you know there are situations where there's the prospect of war And one country might say, you know what, it's better that we have the war now because our relative position is slipping, right? Mm. So if we have the war now, we have a better chance to win it. That's kind of how I feel about this election. Our public schools and our private schools, too, for the most part, are so terrible uh, and they are so undermining our foundations that uh, I, I would rather have a fundamental battle between free enterprise and socialism now than four years, eight years, you know, 12 years from now, because I I, I don't think that the uh, that the sands are running our way.
2: Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 in terms of uh, synthesizing capitalism to remove it from an abstraction, an intellectual exercise to something that people can actually consume, understand, take it home. Um, You know, Haley's speech was uh, in the abstract. Same thing, really, with Rubio and Howley, and they're trying to, you know, common good capitalism, trying to redefine it. But, I mean, in terms of your expression, if somebody didn't know anything about capitalism, how would you explain it to them?
8: It's freedom. You know, and I, I prefer free enterprise uh, to capitalism, although I'm fine with capitalism, uh, but I usually say free enterprise. Now, there are certain institutional supports that you've got to have. You've got to have a sound currency. You've got to have— a judicial a judicial system that provides for the rule of law right uh, free enterprise doesn't mean anarchy but but given that neutral support system uh, free enterprise is just what people do when you leave them alone mm-hmm. uh, they, they get the job that, that that best suits their their needs or that pays them the most money uh, they invest money where where they think they can get a good return they enter into contracts because both parties think they're going to be better off by carrying out the contract. Free enterprise, you know, is, is not really a system in the way that socialism is a is a system. It's just a word for what people do when they're free, when you leave them alone.
2: He is John Hindraker, president of the Center of the American Experiment, and again, contributor at PowerlineBlog.com. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
8: Hey, thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. You
5: can see nice, no one can take away.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof. Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof. Show. Well, we uh, may need to uh, change up the Epstein didn't kill himself and start a hashtag campaign. Haney didn't kill himself. Talking about Philip Haney, much less high profile. But we talked about it earlier in the week, played excerpts from an interview I did with Philip Haney on the morning show I do in Chicago. Philip Haney was a DHS whistleblower, spoke out against DHS during the Obama administration, was ultimately not treated with the fanfare of the so-called whistleblower who sparked the impeachment proceeding against Trump. All whistleblowers are this and all whistleblowers are to be protected and so on and so forth. Philip Haney wasn't. He was driven out of the Home- Department of Homeland Security. And he in our discussions and in public statements he made in addition to a book he wrote talked about how political correctness had poisoned law enforcement and intel agencies with respect to the threat of radical Islamic terror. And he connected dots that weren't connected publicly anywhere else between the San Bernardino terrorist attack, the Orlando nightclub terrorist attack and radical Islamic extremist activity. He also uh, talked, just to refresh, about what was happening while he was still at DHS, including in the FBI.
10: The FBI published the training document. It's called the Touchstone Training Document. It has three major paragraphs within the three-page document. In page or paragraph one, it says plainly, I'm going to slightly paraphrase, that just because an individual is affiliated with a known terrorist group, you cannot automatically assume that that individual is a terrorist himself.
2: Yeah, it's just an example of some of the problematic things that he was noticing and blew the whistle on. In the wake of those awful terrorist attacks in places like San Bernardino and Orlando, particularly when we know there were instances like in Orlando where uh, the terrorist attacker had slipped through the cracks upon being within the scope of federal law enforcement, the culture of federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies matters, and that's what Philip Haney was talking about and wrote about in his book, See Something, Say Nothing. Well, Haney was found dead, and the initial report found dead 40 miles east of Sacramento in Plymouth, California, on a highway, outside of his car, gun next to his car, and the initial report was self-inflicted gunshot wound that Haney had committed suicide. Well, that has now been recanted. The sheriff's office in Amador County, California, has since described the initial reports as misinformation. And they've asked, well, the FBI, for assistance in investigative Haney's death. Unfortunately, there was misinformation immediately being put out that we have determined Mr. Haney's—we had determined Mr. Haney's death to be a suicide. That is not the case. We are currently in the beginning phase of our investigation, and any final determination as to the cause and manner of Mr. Haney's death would be extremely premature and inappropriate. No determination will be made until all the evidence is examined and analyzed. Thought it was curious. Thought it was curious the nature of the suicide on a highway. Uh, he's outside of his car, gone outside of his car. That's where you choose to commit suicide. Uh, don't know if he ultimately did or didn't, just asking the questions because the circumstances were curious. And apparently the sheriff's office finds the circumstances curious too. So we'll stick on the story, even though the DC press corps won't. This is the damn Proctor. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Talk about the economic impacts of coronavirus. Obviously, we're all familiar with the market sell-off the last uh, three days. This piece from uh, Kevin Marsh in the Wall Street Journal, former member of the Federal Reserve Board, now a... uh, visiting fellow in economics at Stanford. He suggests that the Fed should get involved at this juncture. He uh, argues in his piece, the Fed should announce a quarter point interest rate cut to make clear it's open minded about further action. The Fed should also encourage other central banks to central banks to take appropriate simultaneous action to loosen monetary policy in their jurisdictions. Global action would help make the most of scarce policy ammunition. And he uh, cites no less than authority than Milton Friedman in arguing for this uh, looser monetary policy, citing Friedman's uh, utterance 50 years ago that monetary policy can contribute to offsetting major disturbances in the economic system arising from other sources. He compares the need to do something now to the action Bernanke took at the depths of the Great Recession. And he goes on to say Fed leaders call the current ostensibly low level of inflation the greatest challenge for this generation of monetary policymakers. I disagree. An exogenous, uncertain global economic shock is a far bigger and more pressing challenge and a far more compelling rationale for policy action. And that's, of course, what he categorizes coronavirus to be. For more on this topic and a response to that call for an interest rate cut from the Fed... We're pleased to be joined by Jim Urio, who is the proprietor of Brandt's in Palatine, uh, best hamburger in Chicagoland in the world. Jim, thanks for joining us.
9: Thanks for having me. I reluctantly and I sadly agree. And the reason it's sad and reluctant is because monetary policy has been too loose for too long. You know, you can trace that back to 30 years. And one of the reasons that I'm against that all the time is because when situations like this arise, you want to have plenty of ammunition to fight it. Just it's irritating to me that over the last probably couple years, when it seems like things were heating up very good, they let monetary policy stay um, you're so dumbish. when you hear James Bullard and Jay Powell speak and they speak about not being able to control to get some inflation and that frustrates the heck out of them and they really want that to happen. I understand, but I think they're just measuring it wrong and I think they have made mistakes before, but I agree with Kevin Martin.
2: So, but, but I mean when we look at other uh, sell-offs inspired by global virus emergencies over the last 20 years – What you see is uh, the market having a significant downturn, but you look six months and a year out and you see the rebound. And I'm wondering if you think we're near a washout and a rebound is in the offing or if you think you're going to see, you know, a 20, 25 percent market correction for other reasons.
9: I don't. And the reason I don't is a couple. You know, we our age, mine and yours, is that we've seen two things over the last 25 years that have been devastating in markets the tech stack and the real estate. And those were both characterized by these unbelievable buildups that filtered their way down to even mom and pops of leverage buying of assets. So, you know, take the real estate one. I don't see that. I see a lot of, of leverage in buying assets, but it's broadly spread across a, a lot of different asset classes. And the underlying situation in our country still was very, very good. I don't know how the economic impact is going to fall out. Neither is anyone else, by the way. So I, I personally think – 10% is what we were gunning for. I think 3000 on the S&P is where I'm going to start buying again. 3000 is, you know, we're only 50 handles away for that in the S&P right now, and that's where I'm going to start looking um, to be long. Uh, these kind of things, and I know Donald Trump said it, and a lot of people made fun of him, in that when everyone's inside in the depths of winter, uh, it, it, these, these things seem a lot worse than they are, and they are a lot worse. Um, and we've seen in Singapore, at first it seemed like it was going to be a big deal, and then because of you know, the, the weather, it seems like it's going to be less of a deal. Again, I'm not an expert on this, but that's what it seems like to me, and that's what my money's going to be.
2: Right, I mean, and, and it's something you said that seems to me key, is just the fundamentals, are the fundamentals of the economy relatively solid, uh, and I say relatively relative to the rest of the world? Is America still the tallest skyscraper in Wichita? And the answer seems to be a resounding yes, and I know... The past performance is no indicator nor guarantee of future performance. But I did see some analysts uh, pointing out that when you saw two days with 90 percent of New York Stock Exchange issues going down, which we just saw in the past, uh, the S&P has rallied every time two months later by a median of 7.6 percent, one year later by a median of 25 percent. So uh, that's no guarantee that it will occur again. But it does say something about um, about blips like this.
9: There's, and, and I'll add something to that, too. The first month of the coronavirus fears, the stock market was rallying alongside gold, the U.S. dollar, U.S. treasuries. It, the the theory kind of being is this: the global central banks, including the Fed, are throwing money into the system to to offset the economic impact, it's spent, it tends and you you use the tall skyscraper in Wichita. That's fine. I'm so tired of the you know the cleanest shirt and the laundry or whatever people use like that. But that's a good one. <laughs> what it is is people go people go to uh, you know what is the best the best house. And our stock market could easily jump from being this risk off. A, you know, a risk asset, which is now being sold, to being somewhere where the globe's gonna, kinda kind of store its money over the next few months, if money's being thrown at this problem. But I mean, it ha- hasn't happened yet. I'm gonna wait for some patterns to develop before I jump on that.
2: So, uh, is the uh, Tyler Cohen wrote about this uh, the other day in his Bloomberg News column, and and others have too, talking about the global supply chains and the the uh, the delicate nature of some of these supply chains, and that that could be sort of the next shoe to drop if this does metastasize in the West, the coronavirus. Is that your primary concern as well when you look oh. at um, where no, to no pay, at park your money?
9: Yeah, well, no, no question at all that that's the immediate concern of the supply chain. But if it really kicks in in our country, too, then there's obviously a lot of different Um, you know, local type businesses that will be affected by it and could have caused a recession without any question. But, you know, there's just the different levels as we go. And remember, too, we are still talking about something where there's 60 cases in our country and zero fatalities. So, you know, I believe that it it probably is good for people to reassess risk. I know that markets tend to price in worst-case scenarios, which I believe is what we're doing right now. Um, But, again, it's still a massive unknown
2: this uh, is giving uh, industrial policy types uh, some ammo to talk about, uh, you, know, you know, in a centrally planned way, uh, um, uh, almost bringing supply chains on shore so that we're not so dependent on far eastern countries, uh, particularly a communist one like China. Of course, there's been some movement in supply chains throughout the trade war with the Chinese under President Trump. But uh, what is your position with respect to those who argue that uh, this presents prima facie evidence of the need to go in an uh, yeah, autarchical there, there, direction. Yeah,
9: sure, there's there's definitely risks about do, dealing so heavily in particular like you said communist controlled countries, countries that that you know people well I could say a lot of things, but I don't want to offend anybody. There's huge risk. Is this probably just talk that'll be right now and then in four months will be forgotten and we'll go to where the cheapest thing is? Yeah, probably. I don't believe there's going to be necessarily any real change. I mean, we're probably heading in a slightly better direction, and that started to happen with the trade talks where we, we realize there's risks in, um, in being so heavily dependent on China. Uh, you know, there's stories. I mean, you know, intellectual property. I, not to get off into the weeds here, too. But for years and years, my my friends in the technology industry don't don't leave their cell phones in their hotel in, in China. And if we can get past that, you know what? Again, I'm rambling again. This markets have got me all flustered. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm just saying. I mean, say, it, be part of where you're going though is how this impacts our future relationship with China, particularly as uh, a month before this became a a worldwide concern. We were, uh, you know, fully enmeshed in projections about what Phase Two talks would look like.
9: Sure, and already working through the difficulties with working through a trade partner and a partner in general like China. Does this add to that? Sure, it does. Do I think, you know, these pandemics they pass, even the bad ones. Even it, it could I'm not even saying it's going to be nothing, but in months down the road then decisions are going to be made again. And a lot of companies make them just based strictly on money. I don't have a lot of confidence that it's going to change things in a huge amount. I do think it will change things in a small amount, though, and that's that's helpful.
2: He is Jim Urio, CNBC contributor and uh, the proprietor of Brants in scenic Palatine, Illinois. Beautiful. Jim, time thanks for year. joining us. Appreciate it.
9: Thank you.
0: is In Session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We move from assessing the economic impact of coronavirus with Jim Uriel from CNBC to assessing the economic impact of everything Bolshevik Bernie Sanders would do if he were made Dictator, which may be the first thing he'd like to see happen. This, uh, with help from Casey Mulligan, University of Chicago economist, former chief economist for uh, Council of Economic Advisors. He writes in his blog: "When I was at CEA, we used an extension of the neoclassical growth model to assess the economic impact of Medicare for All. We charitably interpret as a hundred percent public financing of the health sector, with nobody consuming less health care and many consuming more than in the baseline. We also." Charitably assumed that the public financing would occur with taxes that have minimum efficiency loss per dollar collected. So, in other words, uh, a couple of rosy baselines they started with. Here's their argument, results, analysis of Medicare for All's impact. As reported in the 2019 economic report of the president, we concluded that payroll taxes would increase 14 percentage points. Tax payments would increase an average of $18,000 per household per year. Real national income and GDP would fall 9%. Real national income net of taxes and health spending would fall 19%. That's the result from Medicare for All by itself in a best-case scenario, $18,000 per year. So when Bernie Sanders, at least honestly, talks about household incomes uh, down to $29,000, seeing a significant increase in uh, taxes, he says four points on the payroll tax, 14 is more likely— for the spend that you're talking about, according to Casey Mulligan, there's the impact, but you're going to realize all these savings in the premiums and co-pays you're not paying. Are you? Uh, he went on to look at other component parts of the Bolsheviks policy agenda, including free public college, free childcare and the full transformation of the energy sector. Okay. So let's look at some of the assumptions that Mulligan makes and, uh, the conclusions he draws about the impact. Now, some of this is dense and it's numbers heavy, but I mean, you need to start getting a handle on the consequences of what is being proposed beyond just listening to politicians say it's 30 trillions, 40 trillions, 50 trillion numbers that don't mean anything to anybody and are frankly mystical anyway. So the assumptions here, the rest of the Bernie agenda, not including Medicare for All, which we've already tackled. Mulligan writes, I assume what is currently household spending on public college tuition and on daycare will become free. And that these resources will see their utilization increase by the same percentage as healthcare. Under that assumption, a Sanders administration would provide federal assistance to non-rich households burdened by high energy prices that come with the Green New Deal. I also expand the federal budget for that purpose by another two percent of baseline consumption. So even without any productivity loss or increased utilization in healthcare, college, and daycare. This means the Sanders agenda would be expanding the federal budget by 13.25% of baseline consumption, including 19% additional utilization of these free goods and services. You know, what happens when something's free? It's overconsumed. Tax rates on labor income, including the 19% additional utilization, the overconsumption. Tax rates on labor income must increase by 23.5 percentage points. GDP falls by 16 points. And that doesn't consider productivity losses. Continuing, if productivity fell by 25%, which is optimistic as nationalizations go, looking at his, historical examples, then the output in those industries would have to be cut by 25%. To be clear, the result would be less health care, less college, and less daycare, right? You overconsume on the free side, productivity declines, and you actually have less, availab- less availability of that resource, He goes on to the regulatory environment. Sanders will re-regulate the economy that President Trump has deregulated, in part by just stopping the promulgation of the number of new regulations that we've become accustomed to. I optimistically project the regulation to return to a pre-2016 regulatory trend, plus cutting energy productivity in half because of the GND, the deindustrialization of America. This is Mulligan writing. The pre-2016 trend was to reduce productivity by 16 one hundredths of a percent per year, which would be 1.3 percent by 2024. I assume that a President Sanders would undo President Trump's deregulatory agenda and his corporate tax cut, thereby reduce productivity by another 3.3 percent. Taking energy as 3 percent of the economy, the climate change part of the Sanders agenda would again optimistically reduce productivity by 3 percent. Adding these two productivity losses in the nationalized industries, that's 11 percent less productivity. Overall, real GDP and consumption would fall 24%. Employment and hours would fall 16% combined. Real wages would fall 11% before taxes. After-tax, real wages would fall 51%. This is akin to the Great Depression of the 1930s, except the Great Depression was eventually followed by a recovery, whereas the Sanders agenda does not involve eventually putting policies back to the way President Trump had them. Therefore, the stock market would fall at least what it did in 1929, which was almost 50%. Now, again, I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you. Read Casey Mulligan's piece at caseymulligan.blogspot.com. I will tweet it out at Dan Profshow. But the point is that what you're in for with the nationalization of all these sectors of the economy is overconsumption leading to shortages, leading to productivity declines, leading to wages plummeting. Uh, after tax, real after tax wages plummeting even more, and uh, a cratering of the stock market. Meaning, unless you're a public sector worker in places like Illinois with uh, 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 defined benefit contribution pension plans, uh, your 401k being hammered. Again, akin to Great Depression of the 1930s. The econometric analysis of what Bernie Sanders has proposed taken as taken at face value. Great Depression, except there's no recovery because there's no policy reversal. Stock market falling, at least what it did in 1929, almost cut in half. As an academic exercise, Mulligan writes, I've taken Sanders literally. It's not a good forecast of what his policies would be, but it is instructive to know the implications of his promises. His promises so damaging the rest of the political system would water them down ostensibly, But it doesn't matter whether they would water them down or not for the purposes of this intellectual exercise, which is to get an understanding of where this guy is coming from. What he thinks is smart public policy, even directionally, even if you were able to mitigate some of the extent of the damage. Remember, just even looking at marginal income tax rates. I mean, the, the doubling of the top marginal rate And a doubling of the capital gains tax, you want less work, that much less work? You know, you tax something, you get less of, axiomatic. So you tax income, you get less income, meaning less work. You tax investment, you get less investment. You want less capital formation, which drives business formation? It's just remarkable. By the way, he uh, adds, uh, does Casey Mulligan in his piece, my GDP estimates do not include any climate damage. M- Medicare for all is a big part of the Sanders agenda. It has nothing to do with the environment. Uh, banning fracking, which is part of the Sanders agenda, makes climate change worse, actually. To the extent worse climate change, worse climate the worst climate means less GDP for the U.S., uh, that would have to be additionally calculated. So all of this doesn't even get into uh, what we'll uh, talk about with our next guest, which is the— Bolshevik and the Mensheviks' unanimity when it comes to banning fracking and reducing America's energy independence. This is how damaging what has been proposed and essentially accepted by acclamation from Democrat Socialists running for president. This is Dan Proft.
5: You're listening to
0: The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, yesterday, we talked about the uh, Project Veritas undercover reporting video that was posted. James O'Keefe and his uh, band of merry exposers. ABC News uh, correspondent David Wright, uh, since suspended for comments he made, really more uh, critical of ABC News and the Beltway media than of uh, President Trump. Although he's not a fan, which sort of made his remarks uh, more powerful. Uh, just a, a refresher on something important he said about what his job had beco- had had become under President Trump. And remember, this is somebody uh, inside the Beltway media at the highest levels, really highest levels of access for three decades. The three types of buckets that uh, somebody like uh, David Wright has to fill working for ABC News.
1: We don't him to account. We also don't give him credit for what
9: things he does do. Again, I think some of that, at least in, in where, the place that I work and, and the places like it,
0: is that um, we, you know, with Trump, we're interested in three things. We're interested in the outrage of the day, the investigation, and kind of the palace intrigue of who's backstabbing who. But beyond that, we don't really cover
2: the guy. We don't really cover the guy. Remarkable statement, isn't it? Remarkable statement from ABC News correspondent at the level of a David Wright. And talking about those three buckets, he fills the the outrage of the day. So, in other words, anything that's CNN Chiron worthy with an exclamation point and a breaking news des- descriptor. The um, palace intrigue, you know, all the personnel, business and gossip and the and I would add faux, But he just said investigation, you know, whatever uh, is the latest investigation that Schiff, Nadler, at all have cooked up. They don't cover the guy substantively. And this is, again, David Wright, who identifies, he did in the video, as a socialist, despises Trump, thinks he is a, uh, well, Richard. You get the gist of it, I'm sure. Doesn't like him. That's what makes his commentary on ABCs all the more powerful, and that's why he got suspended, because he told the truth about what major media news outlets on the eastern seaboard, have become under this president, the political shops at least. And so against that backdrop, you had President Trump, his campaign, uh, technically, filing a defamation suit against the New York Times yesterday for a piece they published a year ago, March 27th of 2019, an opinion piece by Max Frankel that accused President Trump, as you heard Larry O'Donnell accuse him as recently as this weekend on MSNBC, of being in liege with the Kremlin. The campaign and the Kremlin had an overarching deal, help beat beat Hillary Clinton for a new pro-Russian foreign policy. That was the argument that was made by Frankel. And, of course, the argument made in the complaint is that the New York Times and Frankel knew it was false and exercised reckless disregard for the truth to try to influence the 2020 campaign by recasting the 2016 campaign, telling a lie about it. President Trump asked about this suit yesterday Uh, during the uh, coronavirus briefing.
6: Your campaign uh, today sued the New York Times for
3: an opinion piece. Is it your opinion or is it your contention that if people have an opinion contrary to yours, that they should be sued? Well, when they get the opinion totally wrong, as the New York Times did, and frankly, they've got a lot wrong over the last number of years. So we'll see how that, let that work its way through the courts. No, no, if if you read it, you'll see it's beyond an opinion. That's not an opinion. That's something much more than an opinion. They did a bad thing. Uh, And
2: there'll be more coming. It's a high high standard, New York Times v. Sullivan, for a public figure. Reckless disregard for the truth is the standard. Uh, Whether or not uh, the New York Times met it for uh, a court to decide, a judge ultimately to decide. But is it an actionable claim, that Max Frankel piece? For more on this, James Dellingpole, executive editor of Breitbart London, contributor to BogPaper.com and Ricochet.com, author of Watermelons, How Environmentalists Are Killing the Planet, destroying the economy and stealing your children's future. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, and I, I wonder, um, too, just thinking about this, the, uh, the the posture of President Trump, so much different from Republicans of past and so many in present that try to sidle up to the Beltway media because they have the biggest blowtorches, where President Trump is ready to go toe-to-toe and frontally assault them in service of his agenda and his constituency, it really is a departure from what we've seen from Republican presidents, at least since Reagan.
11: That is a, is, is, is a good point. I, I think, particularly the point about the constituency. I think that so many, so many Republican presidents, like like Democrat presidents, end up looking after the interests of the swamp rather than the actual electorate. And I think Trump, what what really makes Trump stand out is that he's looking, after, he's looking after ordinary Americans, looking after their interests, you know, people who make stuff, who dig stuff and grow stuff. He's got their back.
2: Uh, when we come back with James Dellingpole, executive editor of Breitbart London, we're going to find out why the Democrats are fracking insane, literally in an economic sense. More with James Dellingpole right after this.
0: Exposing. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show.
2: We're back with James Dellingpole, executive veteran of Breitbart London, contributor to bogpaper.com and ricochet.com, author of Watermelons. How environmentalists are killing the planet, destroying the economy, and stealing your children's future, as well as the uh, purveyor of the Delling Pod podcast. Uh, James, uh, you wrote a piece for Spectator USA about the Democrats being fracking insane. Uh, This is an issue that surprisingly hasn't gotten as much attention I guess because there's general agreement. One of the great successes of America over the last decade has been a move to energy independence, and this is something that the Democrats want to undo.
11: It's extraordinary, isn't it? If you went back to the 1970s in the U.S., the idea that America would become energy independent by the early 21st century would have seemed quite extraordinary. And if you told people that actually America was going to become a net exporter of petroleum products. No one would believe you. I mean, America produces more oil, I think I'm right in saying, than Saudi Arabia. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I think I think yeah, that's, that's true. Right. That's right. Um, the idea that you'd want to knock back this energy independence, undermine it, by denying yourself the use of one of your best resources strikes me as absolutely bonkers. And I'm talking about shale gas. Now, shale gas up until about the middle of the 20th century, maybe a bit later, was considered to be inaccessible. It was You had all this energy trapped in the shale formations underneath underneath the USA, and you couldn't get at it because the technology wasn't there. And then a brilliant guy, a classic American success story, this a guy called George Mitchell, who was a Texan entrepreneur. He was the son of Greek immigrants. I think his dad might have been a goat herd or something, or a sheep herd. This guy decided to combine two technologies. One was fracking the process of breaking up rocks under, under high pressure um, to release the gas formations. But he combined that with horizontal drilling, so that you could drill horizontally underneath through these shale formations and release all this gas uh, underneath the, the crust of the earth, and produce shale gas. And of course, shale gas is now making a massive contribution to America's energy economy, And, of course, it's partly responsible for the fact that America's – not that I care about these things, nor should you because they're irrelevant – but America's CO2 emissions are actually dropping. America is one of the few countries in the world where where CO2 emissions have have kept in line with the the principles of of that Kyoto Agreement that people reached a few years ago.
2: All of that in terms of uh, economic dollars and cents and common sense, the intersection of the two. And then there's the political common sense piece of it, which is – the left's sort of categorical opposition to fossil fuels has basically taken Ohio off the map for them in terms of a state that they can win, which used to be the bellwether state or the linchpin state for their electoral majority, I should say. And it also put Pennsylvania back in play, ultimately providing Trump with a narrow victory in Pennsylvania in 2016. And so that Rust Belt that they so need, and those Midwestern states that they so need, they're taking such a hostile position to those states with respect to significant percentages of their workforce that are in, in a vibrant energy sector. It's, it's sort of politically curious in addition to economically curious.
11: Well, it's not just politically curious. It's politically suicidal. And thank goodness for that. I mean, God bless all the Democrat candidates because they are all absolutely useless. They are all unelectable. Uh, which, which means that Trump 2020 is, I would say, a dead cert. And thank goodness for that, because if any of these Democrat, Democrat candidates got into power, if the Green New Deal was implemented, it would be a disaster for America.
2: Are you surprised that the Democrats, the establishment types that you see populate the airwaves and all the talk shows and the opinion pages of all the Beltway outlets, how lethargic they were to recognize the rise of Bernie. It's not like he can say he snuck up on you in 2020 after he almost deposed Hillary Clinton in 2016. And it's not like you haven't fomented the very base that Bernie is thriving upon with help from the socialist Spice Girls in the House that we've seen ply their trade for the last three years. How can they be so surprised? How can they be in such scramble mode to try and stop Bernie because they fear exactly what you just said, that he amongst them all is the most unelectable?
11: Yes, but the thing is, your situation in the U.S. is not dissimilar from our situation in the K. In that the left... Has, if you like, it's jumped the shark. It's gone so obsessed with the green agenda. It's got it so obsessed with identity politics. You know, declaring that there there, there, there aren't two sexes. There are, there are multiple sexes, and 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 you can be whatever gender you choose to be, and so on. This this kind of stuff is really of no interest to the the, the regular Joe, who just wants to kind of get on with and, and earn a living. You know, and and. Uh, be given a chance by, by, by of you know, uh, a better future by the government. That's, that's what most people want. They, don't want. they don't want these politically correct meddling idiots. And they certainly don't want their economy bombed back to the Dark Ages um, because, because some, some 17-year-old dropout from Sweden tells them that the planet is doomed and we've all got to give up fossil fuels. So you're right they are they are destroying themselves. They are destroying their their chances of winning in any of the states which fossil, which produce fossil fuels.
2: And perhaps the key point there, and maybe Bloomberg is the best illustration of it, once you unleash these forces, there is no political fallback position. There's no position where they can retreat to. Bloomberg spending his entire campaign uh, when you know p- p- him uh, face to camera, apologizing. Um, and the others, essentially, uh, slow walking the Bernie Sanders agenda. There's just no fallback position for them.
11: Absolutely, they 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 painted themselves into a corner because, of course, either you, either you believe that the planet is is doomed unless we all put up loads and loads of, of wind turbines and, well, um, I call them bat chomping bird slicing eco crucifixes. But if you <laughs> okay. if you cover Catchy. every every field with with solar panels, which of course fry birds out of the sky, and if you pump loads and loads of subsidies into these things, um, if that's what you genuinely believe, then you can't really row back from that position and say, well, hang on a second, actually, maybe I overstated my case, maybe the planet's got a bit longer than 10 years, and maybe, maybe we should have a bit, a bit of coal and shale gas in the mix. It's, you're, you're right. It's, it, it's not possible. The, the, the polarization of politics is extraordinary.
2: He is James Dellingpole. Check out the Deling Pod podcast. He's the executive editor of Breitbart London, contributed to bogpaper.com and ricochet.com, our friend John Gabriel over there. Also, the book Watermelons, How Environmentalists Are Killing the Planet, Destroying the Economy, and Stealing Your Children's Future. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you
11: very much.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof. Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof. Show. And I'm always thankful when science can help explain something I intuitively know, but can't quite provide the explanation. So, you know, why is it that I'm attracted to uh, Mercedes benzes for example? And uh, some research, both from UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, as well as the University of Helsinki, provides the answer. Study finding drivers of flashy vehicles less likely to stop and allow pedestrians to cross the road, with the likelihood they'll slow down for pedestrians, decreasing by 3% for every extra $1,000 of vehicle worth. Researchers find that uh, uh, those in expensive uh, cars, expensive car owners, May feel a sense of superiority over other road users, less able to empathize with lowly sidewalk dwellers. So the upshot is if you drive an expensive car, you're probably a jerk. Yeah, okay. It's starting to come into focus for me. A survey of 1,892 drivers by the University of Helsinki finds those deemed to have more disagreeable character traits were also more drawn to high-status fancy cars. Uh, the uh, lead researcher on the job at Helsinki U. I had noticed that ones most likely to run a red light, not give way to pedestrians, and generally drive recklessly and too fast were often the ones driving fast German cars. Hmm. What kind of person more likely to buy one of those expensive fast German cars? The answers were unambiguous, unambiguous. Self-centered men who are argumentative, stubborn, disagreeable, and unempathetic are much more likely to own a high-status car such as an Audi, BMW, or Mercedes. Well, that explains it, uh, this says this Mercedes owner. Now, now, there's a kicker here. There's other characteristics emblematic of those high-status fancy car owners. People with conscientious characters also seem to seek out pricey car models and other models uh, as well, according to the Helsinki research. People uh, with this type of personality are, as a rule, respectable, ambitious, reliable, and well-organized. They take care of themselves and their health and often perform well at work. And they want a high performance car on the road to perform as well on the road as they do at work. So that's the rosy side of the picture when it comes to uh when it comes to people who are uh, possessors of the high end German cars. I don't know why it's just Audi BMW or Mercedes, but anyway, nonetheless, uh it is explanatory, it is illuminating and um You know, it is true, both ends of it, the Jekyll and the Hyde.
0: news he's always got the real story this is the Dan Proft show you are fake news. the world is a complicated place you need someone to expose the political fakers fixers and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is Dan Proft and this is the Dan Proft show
2: we spent a lot of time on this show talking about family because it turns out family is the building block of civilization so it's rather important It also turns out that for all of the distortions in our political discourse about people having to uh, take scrupulous inventory of their perceptions about gender norms and uh, think uh, globally and act locally and all the other refrigerator magnets of the left or those who seek to redefine institutions of civilization out of existence or bastardize them into something that they were never intended to be, uh, irrespective of the consequences, that um, a lot of Americans are concerned with things that uh, we've always been concerned about, like finding a desirable partner to spend your life with and create family and raise a family. Uh, Kay Heimowitz recently gave testimony to the U.S. Joint Economic Committee in a hearing entitled "Improving Family Stability for the Well-Being of American Children." Oh yeah, remember them, the children. <laughs> Once you talk, once the politicians talk a lot about, huh, what are they doing with respect to the focus on children? Uh, She writes um, about uh, the progress women have made in the workplace. And of course it's undeniable and it's a lot of good news. Um, But what about, uh, what about marriage? What about marriage? Um, And uh, where, strides are being made or not being made there relative to people's desires. The opportunities for American women, uh, testified Kay Hamowitz, to exercise their talents, to be financially independent, to leave an abusive marriage, to buy their own homes, and to build wealth are extraordinary and unprecedented. The opportunities for them to find a desirable husband or partner, that is, a man with whom they might want to raise children, turn out to be another matter. The problem is especially acute for lower-skilled individuals. In 1960, more than 90% of adult women over 35 had married. There was little difference between rich and poor women. High school dropouts and college grads all married at similar rates. The numbers for all groups began to fall over the next decade, but the decline was especially dramatic for women with less than a college degree. As of 2015, 71% of college-educated women were married. That was true for only 56% of less-educated women. Not only is that difference of uh, 14 percentage points Stark, The drop from, uh, from, from 1960, where it was 90-plus percent of women over the age of 35, regardless of education, is really something. And it uh, recalls the argument that Mike Lind makes in his uh, book about class warfare, effectively, and that the real divide in this country is not so much between race or even gender. It's between the managerial elite, those with college degrees, and those without – for more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Kay Himowitz. She is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor to City Journal, and author of the book *The New Brooklyn*. Uh, and she also tackled a column that we tackled a couple of weeks ago, and that was David Brooks's piece in the Atlantic about the nature of family in 21st century America. Kay, thanks for joining us. Uh, joining us again, appreciate it. On this uh, this uh, development in terms of uh, individuals finding their life partner, particularly women finding a husband, um, is uh, the dramatic decline that you noted in your testimony before that joint committee, is that something that women are concerned about? I mean it's one thing to be concerned about it as a demographer. It's one thing to be concerned about it as a social policy analyst. It's another thing if actually women in America are as concerned about it as the data would indicate social policy advocates or social policy analysts uh, should be concerned?
12: Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that a lot of women are very worried about it, but I think that they um, are being raised to think mostly about being uh, independent uh, and able to take care of themselves, which would be fine but uh, most of them are going to want a decent uh, uh, partner, husband, uh, and want to be able to raise their children with them. That, that Whether they're going to be able to find somebody like that is another question. One of the things that I talked about in my testimony was that there's been a, a remarkable uh, exodus of prime-age working men from the labor market. These don't, These guys don't show up in the unemployment numbers. Um, because they're never counted because they're not looking for work and about uh, 10% of prime-aged men uh are simply not trying to work uh not working Uh, And um, the evidence, best evidence shows they are also not taking care of children or really doing much to contribute to their communities. Um, So, you know, that really limits the the uh, number of men that are available to low skilled or uh, less educated women.
2: Despite all of the uh, rhetoric about um, independence as the ultimate good, uh, there is still great support among women for a husband who makes more than they do.
12: Right. Uh, so that kind of didn't fit the narrative that we were given. You know, There was going to be this uh, absolute equality. Women would be, as I said, independent and they wouldn't need a husband. Um, But what's interesting is that um, a lot of the research that's been done recently suggests that women are still looking for men who earn at least as much as they do and preferably more. And that's true at every uh, education level. So uh, as women do better and better in uh, in education as they are, and and I suspect you and your listeners know a bit about that already, uh, they are also more capable of finding um, higher-level jobs. Now, there is still a gender gap, um, and I don't, don't want to discount that, um, and we can talk about why that is. It's, uh, uh, not, uh, it's not clear that much of it has to do with discrimination. But there, the and, point and it, is uh, that they are now yeah. equipped to out-earn men, and will be doing so more and more.
2: Well, just uh, to the point about discrimination, uh, thinking about it uh, racial as well as gender, because this is the go to explanation for all of societal ills from the left. And we heard it on the state yeah. debate stage in Charleston on Tuesday night. Uh, you point out again, going back to your testimony, uh, your testimony, the ratio of for black men and women. Uh, c- c- considerably worse when it talks when you you talk about the number of never married employed men between 25 and 34 per per hundred women never employed married men uh excuse me never married employed men between 25 and 34 per hundred women the ratio in the black community 51 employed young black men for every 100 young black women um, so again, noting that the, the disposition for women is somebody you know that makes as much or more, or certainly probably one th- one step below as at least employed in making something and being productive. That is a huge disparity.
12: It really is, uh, and explains so much about the collapse of marriage in the in uh, the black community. Um, and uh, you know, I think that we we really need to be putting a lot more attention on the education of uh lower skilled less men who are not going to go to college necessarily but who can find productive work and uh particularly minority men uh who are whose dropout rates and uh school problems are uh considerably worse than for white men which is now, which is always uh, also worse than for white women
2: uh you uh, also um uh, had a piece addressing the David Brooks Atlantic uh, sort of historical track of the changing nature of the American family over the last uh, 75 years or so. And, uh, you know, you sort of uh, borrow from uh, Churchill that uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for every other. The uh, nuclear family is the worst form of family except for every other <laughs> form. Uh, j- explain what you meant by that in response to the Brooks piece.
12: Yeah, I think the fact that um, we are um, pair bonding uh, animals or, or creatures, uh, and we are always going to be trying to pair up, uh, and the fact that we, pr- we reproduce um, that way uh, means that there's going to be a um, preference for uh, some kind of traditional arrangement between mother and father, and uh, in, in uh, much of the world, that takes the form of a, of a monogamous marriage. Uh, and um, I don't see that there's any way to change that. Uh, it is the founding, the, the building block for the rest of society. Now, David Brooks is uh, promoting the idea of extended families, which I have no problem with, by the way. But extended families also depend on nuclear families. Right, because you still need that basic bond between mother and father. And if you have extended families but no fathers around, you are not going to have uh, an arrangement that's going to work well uh, for either either children or or men, by the way.
2: She is Kay Hemowitz. She's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor to City Journal, author of the book The New Brooklyn. Okay, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you. this
0: This is the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show, and uh, this is a real honor. We're pleased to have former United States Attorney General who served under President Reagan, Attorney General Edwin Meese, join us now. Attorney General Meese, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
10: Thank you. Glad to be with you.
2: Great to speak with you again. And uh, I wanted to pick up uh, a conversation with you per this piece that you co-authored with uh, another attorney general, Michael Mukasey, a federal judge. It's uh, a defense of uh, William Barr, that uh, you gentlemen provided in the wake of uh, his uh, involvement in the Roger Stone case that drew such a reaction from a small segment of uh, former DOJ employees, as well as, of course, from the press corps, and why uh, both you and uh, General McKenzie thought it was entirely appropriate for Attorney General Barr to uh, uh, review the Roger Stone sentencing recommendation regardless of whatever the prosecutors under his supervision uh, thought about his review.
10: Okay, well, basically, uh, uh, the the duty of the Attorney General and the Justice Department, basically, is to make sure that justice is done. And in this case, uh, there was a sentence recommended by the uh, attorneys at a much lower level that was very disproportionate to all of the facts and circumstances of the case. And so it was very appropriate for other people, uh, leaders in the Justice Department, to uh, change the recommendation, and Attorney General Barr backed them up on that. I can understand totally uh, what he was doing, and it continues what he has done since he was appointed, and that is to act in the interest of justice in every case and without any uh, political or other type of interference
2: you know it's interesting to to watch this play out too, and of course uh attorney general Barr is happy to testify before Congress on the matter, which he's scheduled to do on march thirty one um, but you know Roger Stone is uh, the type of defendant for whom our justice system uh, uh, is set up to protect right it's it's easy to protect the popular guy or to to uh, you know ride to the defense of the popular guy. Um, The point is that these protections and this oversight is purposely in place for the unpopular defendant. The the defendant, you know, by defending due process uh, and uh, making judgments based on the rule of law, you're going to get static from a partisan press corps. And it seems that Attorney General Barr has been willing to endure that static time and again. And that's good news for the rule of law in this country.
10: It certainly is. And uh, Attorney General Barr is a man of Absolute impeccable integrity he's demonstrated that throughout his professional life, and this is just another example.
2: The other thing that um, strikes me about Barr and it perhaps most came, uh, clearly came through during the uh, the Mueller investigation and the uh, the wind down of that with the testimony before Congress is that uh, even when there were disagreements between Barr and Mueller about the handling of this or the handling of that, uh, Barr stayed on the substance of the matter and uh, explained what he knew to be true and uh, believed to be appropriate without ever getting personal with Bob Mueller, who he's known for a long time, even though they had disagreements. And it seems like he's, he, that's, that's sort of been his uh, consistent approach, which is also refreshing.
10: Yes, it is, and uh, that's typical, I think, of Bill Barr throughout his career.
2: Why do you think, since as someone who knows him, why do you think he decided to, uh, to come back after you know a, almost a 30-year a, a, a distance between the last time he served as attorney general to get back into this pressure cooker?
10: Well, Bill is a real patriot. He loves the country, and I think he felt it was his duty to come in at a time where the whole uh, integrity of the Justice Department was being questioned and where it was important to have someone in who had a good reputation, someone who would was always uh, interested in making sure the interests of justice were served, and also uh, is someone who had the confidence and the independence to take the job. So I think he felt it was a matter of duty.
2: Uh, speaking of independence, this is a word that comes up time and again. Uh, Of course, the charge that Barr endures from his critics is that he's the president's attorney and not the people's attorney. And that's there's that's a distinction that needs to be protected. Um, Going back to your time as attorney general under President Reagan, how how did you manage those lines between uh, the president being the chief executive of the executive branch uh, and you wanting to be an independent attorney general making decisions based on the rule of law the same way that Barr is at present?
10: Well, President Reagan always respected that division of responsibility and the independence of the department, and there was no time that he ever interfered. As a matter of fact, we had a rule that no one in the White House could talk to anyone in the Justice Department about any case without specific permission from me or from my deputy, and that would be in, in rare and exceptional cases where there was some reason for them to a proper reason for them to
2: talk about it Uh, we've talked to a lot of uh, veterans at the FBI who worked uh, under Comey and worked uh, uh, under other FBI directors who are very distressed at what uh, the FBI what happened to the FBI under Comey uh, how politicized at least the senior leadership of the FBI had become I wonder if you are similarly distressed about what seems to have happened at the Department of Justice uh, over the last couple of administrations
10: well, I was very much distressed by Comey uh, and the way in which he abs- actually threw a case. In other words, the way in which the handling of Hillary Clinton as a, as a person being investigated violated every principle, policy, and, and protocol of the FBI and the Justice Department, and it was totally done wrong. He abrogated to himself certain powers that belonged to the Attorney General, or at least to some other attorney in the, in the uh, Department of Justice, everything, almost everything he did in regard to that case was wrong. Up until that time, I thought he was doing a good job in the FBI. I have a, had a very close relationship with the Bureau serving on a commission to look at their uh, implementation of the 9-11 report. And the, I think the Bureau was doing a very good job, and his leadership seemed to be good. And then all of a sudden, when the Hillary Clinton came along, that case, from that point on, almost everything he did was wrong. Uh, not only throwing the case, but also leaking, and uh, the way in which he is uh, part of a conspiracy to try to sink the the uh, Trump administration. I mean, just about everything that was done there seemed to be a total change from anything that has, was involved in the history of the department or the FBI, and certainly wrong for all the people involved.
2: And what about uh, prosecutors on the uh, DOJ side, like uh, the the number three over there at the time, Bruce Orr, whose wife turned out to be working for this opposition research company, and that wasn't disclosed, and there were some uh, curious communication channels that were set up. I mean, just the appearance of conflicts of interest at the upper reaches of the Department of Justice.
10: Right. I think that was another example of a person who was involved wrongly in some very important things that that did go wrong.
2: He is Edwin Meese. He served as United States Attorney General from 1985 to 1988 under President Reagan. He's a distinguished fellow emeritus at the Heritage Foundation and the co-author of this recent op-ed in The Wall Street Journal, which I'll tweet out uh, with uh, General McCasey as well. Lawyers cast a stone at William Barr. Attorney General Meese, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time.
10: Thank you. Good to be with you. Take care.
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
7: Welcome back
2: to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, as a uh, Chicago resident... Illinois resident. I know this uh, movement very well, but it is interesting to see more being written about it recently. And uh, our friend, the Instapundent Glenn Reynolds, picks up on the secession movement uh, afoot in a number of states across the Fruited Plains, his op-ed in USA Today on the topic, uh, recognizing that uh, residents of rural parts of many states want to secede from their state because of the domination of those states by the residents of the large urban center. So Illinois, for example, being dominated by Chicago. The saying in Illinois is, "Once you get outside of Chicago, there's this whole other state called Illinois." Illinois is sort of a three-layered cake. You've got Chicago. You've got the collar counties, the suburban areas. And then you've got everything sort of south of I-80, central and southern Illinois, although there's a lot of diversity there. There's sized urban centers around the central and southern part of the state as well. But it's not just Illinois. You've got Oregonians seeking to cascade into Idaho. Virginians who want to identify as West Virginians don't want to be dominated by North Virginia. Illinoisans fighting to escape Chicago, of course. Californians, Californians dreaming of starting a 51st state. New Yorkers who think three states are better than one. In fact, in California, some of the plans... Not just to split the state up into two, but as many as six separate states as you've seen various uh, secession movements. And in Illinois, uh, the latest iteration of a secession movement is being led by a southern Illinois legislator named Brad Hallbrick, who's a friend of mine. So I know this well. In Illinois, this goes back to the late 70s, where a Republican state senator, when we used to have such things in the suburbs— proposed uh, making northwest the northwest suburbs in Cook County a separate county, a 103rd county within the state called Lincoln County. So at least they could have separate governance at the local level and not be dominated by Chicago within Cook County, which is the second largest county in the country behind L.A. County, and one that's hemorrhaging people. And here, to me, seems the more likely play than the secession movement. It's very difficult to secede from a particular county much less a particular state, and reincorporate as a new state. State and federal constitutions, the state constitutions and the federal one, make it difficult. But the desire is something. As uh, Glenn Reynolds suggests, the reason that the secession movement is gaining steam is the reason that most secession movements spawn is because... People uh, want to leave because they're being treated badly and callously by rulers over which they have no influence. It's uh, arguably a form of taxation without representation and regulation without representation, and throw a layer of contempt on there, too, and you can understand why people want some structural change. But in point of fact, what's actually happening is, despite the desire that uh, to borrow from office space, Michael Bolton, why should I change my name? He's the one who sucks. That's always been my attitude about Illinois. Why should I leave? It's the politicians who who suck. They should leave. But, you know, in point of fact, uh, once you have a populace that has been bribed by its own money and gleefully so at the state level, just as we're concerned about that happening at the national level, you really have a problem. It's just very difficult to remedy a kleptocracy at any level sans some sort of exogenous event that reshuffles the deck because— In a kleptocracy like Illinois and some of those other deep blue states mentioned, people don't believe they're in charge of their own destiny. They don't believe they can improve their condition. So they settle for the status quo or they throw up their hands and start quixotic secession movements or more likely and more often, what do they do? Leave. And when they leave, what happens to the state? Well, it gets that much deeper blue. There's that uh, much less diversity of opinion because the people who have left – are the people who are sick of being abused and want to chart a better life for themselves and their families, and usually at a lower price point. And that's sort of my track now. I mean, to some extent, there's only so much fighting you can do of City Hall. And the great genius of America is you've got these 50 laboratories of democracy. And if a few states want to turn their laboratories into meth labs, that's fine. There are other options. And as we're sitting here in, a 20, in 2020 in a census year, you're going to see that play out, manifest itself with the uh, number of red states that gain congressional seats in the multiples like Texas and Florida versus those who lose congressional seats like California and Illinois and New York so you know, probably secession is a useful expression of how exasperated these populations are in the states mentioned and 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 I understand You know, it's easy to talk about relocating. It's easy to talk about moving from one state to another, even if it's a closed state, a contiguous state. It's still a significant alteration of one's life. You're still probably in some cases at minimum breaking social networks, professional networks, maybe familial networks or creating distance between them. And those have real value, too. Not everything is dollars and cents. I totally get it. Some people can't cut up the land they own and move it and don't want to sell it. Uh, Some people have jobs that are not mobile. You know, retreat and living out a better life and rewarding those states that have laboratories that are attractive places to be uh, perhaps is the best revenge and the best course of action for you and your family. For a secession movement that uh, probably isn't going to go anywhere other than to provide an outlet for people who can't leave. can't leave.
0: the Dan
5: Prof
2: show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof show. Uh, Picking up our conversation earlier in the hour with former Attorney General Ed Meese about current Attorney General Bill Barr. One of the really nice things about having an Attorney General like Bill Barr is that you don't just have a principled individual. You don't just have a legal scholar. You have a pretty solid political philosopher, somebody who understands the underpinnings of a free society and our free society in particular, somebody also who understands what the end game of the rule of men over the rule of law left truly is, understands the end game of those who seek to undermine the institutions that provide the ballast for free society. And so Barr's talk yesterday at the National Religious Broadcasters Conference was really something and talking about uh, three of those important institutions paradigms in america religion subsidiarity power closest to the people and a free press
1: why our politics have become so intense so polarized so ill-tempered is that some in the so-called progressive movement have broken away from the fold of liberal democracy to pursue a society more in line with the thinking of Rousseau than with the founders of our great republic. That has played a major role in our politics, becoming less like a disagreement within a family and more like a blood feud between two different clans. Over the past few decades, those further to the left have increasingly identified themselves as progressives rather than liberals and some of these progressives have become increasingly militant and totalitarian in their style. While they seek power through the democratic process, their policy agenda has become more aggressively collectivist, socialist, and explicitly revolutionary. The crux of of the progressive program is the use of the public purse to provide ever-increasing benefits to the public and thereby build a permanent political constituency of supporters who are also dependent. They want able-bodied citizens to become more dependent, subject to greater control and increasingly supportive of this dependency. The tacit goal of this project is to convert all of us into 25-year-olds living in the government's basement Hmm. Focusing our energies on obtaining a larger allowance rather than getting a job and moving out and taking responsibility for ourselves.
2: Uh, He's spot on about that. I mean, the left's angle is consistent across every demographic, every cohort of Americans. Remove agency. Remove agency, replace with dependency, and you have a loyal constituency. That's a pretty simple equation. And Barr does a nice job of laying it bare. The antidote, as he mentioned, religion, subsidiary, free press, in his talk, uh, was also provided in some detail by a recounting of the founding that Barr gave in a speech at Notre Dame back uh, towards the end of last year that, of course, was uh, had the left up in arms because he is a warrior for religious liberty. Uh, religious liberty, religion, family, the diffusion of power, subsidiarity, And a free press and all of the freedoms enshrined in the First Amendment are bulwarks against tyranny, are bulwarks against, frankly, dependency and collectivist thought. Barr made the case back at Notre Dame in the end of 2019.
1: So the founders decided to take a gamble and they called it a great experiment. They would leave the people broad liberty. They would limit the coercive power of the government and they would place their trust in the self-discipline and virtue of the American people. In the words of Madison, we have staked our future on the ability of each of us to govern ourselves. And this is really what they meant by self-government. It did not mean primarily the mechanics by which we select a representative legislature. It referred to the capacity of each individual to restrain and govern themselves. But what was the source of this internal controlling power? In a free republic, those restraints could not be handed down from above by philosopher kings. Instead, social order must flow up from the people themselves, freely obeying the dictates of inwardly possessed and commonly shared moral values. And to control willful human beings with an infinite capacity to rationalize, those moral values must rest on authority independent of men's wills they must flow from the transcend- transcendent supreme being in short the framers in the framers' view free government was only suitable and sustainable for a religious people a people who recognized that there was a transcendent moral order antecedent to both the state and to man-made laws and had the discipline to control themselves according to those enduring principles as james as john adams put it We have no government armed with a power which is capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. And as Father John Courtney Murray observed, the American tenet was not that free government is inevitable, only that it is possible and that its possibility can be realized only when the people as a whole are inwardly governed by the recognized imperatives of the universal moral order.
2: Inwardly governed. No government is sufficient to restrain a people unbridled by moral or religious conviction. He identified three areas where Christians, people of faith, and people who believe in a free society, frankly, even if you're not a person of faith, need to uh pay more attention. Content of public school curriculum, state policies designed to starve religious schools of generally available funds to force religious people to put their kids into public schools, uh, taking, as Father Robert Sirico at the Acton Institute calls, you know, confiscatory taxation that prevents school choice, or the opposition to opportunity scholarships that provide school choice, rather than uh allowing families to be discriminated against and their children to be discriminated against based on their household address and their income. And the thirdly, use of state laws to force religious schools to accept secular morality, you know, Obamacare, and so many other examples. Uh, removing the 501c3 status if you don't accept the redefinition of marriage, as Bobby O'Rourke proposed doing during his ill-fated presidential run. year recall. He uh, said something else about education. I'll close with Education is not vocational training. If we don't pass on our faith and moral conviction to our children in full vigor, all is lost. This is the Dan.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof. Show.
2: This is fascinating. Uh, The Village People. Village People have been pressured to issue a cease and desist to President Trump for the use of their song "Macho Man." I mean, I guess YMCA. Does does Trump use YMCA? I don't know. I haven't been to a rally yet, so I don't know if he uses it or not. But he he used "Macho Man." I think "Macho Man" was used recently when uh, during his appearance in uh, India with uh, Prime Minister Modi. Anyway, uh, the Village People don't know that they're trump supporters but they responded on facebook to the demands from the left that they issue that cease and desist that has happened so often with the republican polls using pop songs here's the village people's response since our music is not being used for a specific endorsement the president's use is perfectly legal he has remained respectful in his use of our songs and has not crossed the line if he or any other candidate were to use any of our songs in a manner that would suggest our endorsement or in a promotional advertisement that would cross the line like millions of village people fans worldwide the president and his supporters have shown a genuine like for our music yeah hey you know what's wrong with like the village people I guess. Or, you know, it's the old Michael Jordan. I uh, uh, Republicans buy tennis shoes, too. Some can not me, but some conservatives like the village people, too. It's funny because you, you think back to all of the uh, iterations of this. And I, for me, I don't know, just because you would just think the village people would be the least likely band to stand up and say, I don't care if Trump uses it. Half the songs that are on the list of uh, examples of artists issuing cease and desists involve Trump. He uh, apparently used rolling in the deep and skyfall. Donald Trump did. Adele issued a statement that she did not directly grant Trump permission to play her songs. And um, Trump didn't cease or desist. But anyway, she she fired her shot across the bow, which is, you know, the virtue signaling the left demands. Dream on. Same thing. Aerosmith sent a cease and desist letter. What are some other Trump examples? I mean, you go through this list. I just pulled up this list of like three dozen instances. A lot of them were uh, like Bon Jovi, who says you can't go home. Uh, That was John McCain, cease and desist. Bruce Springsteen, of course, famously made a big stink about uh, Reagan using Born in the USA. Elton John, there's another one, Rocket Man and Tiny Dancer. Donald Trump, the politician. And... uh, uh, we, I also have to be careful. I don't want Elton John to send a cease and desist, desist letter here to us at the Dan Prof Show because I use that for former Chicago mayor and tiny dancer Rahm Emanuel. I have popularized that nickname for uh, for Rahm Emanuel you know, because he was a ballet dancer. Some people probably around the country don't know that. He was. He looked like Tim Curry from the Rocky Horror Picture Show back in the day, and he's a really teeny guy. He's about like three and a half feet tall. So it just seemed perfect. Uh, Ted Cruz, John, as I said, John McCain, Sarah Palin, Hart, uh, told her to cease and desist using Barracuda back in 2008, and so on and so forth. So, you know, good for the Village people to not politicize or allow their music to be politicized, uh, striking uh, a blow against the politicization of everything and the enjoyment by everyone. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. We'll see you tomorrow night.
0: Far from the fake news. He's always got the
5: real story. This is the Dan Proft Show.
3: You are fake news.